Kia ora, aotearoa, and welcome to Generally Famous, a Stuff podcast. I'm Simon Bridges, and every week I talk to a generally famous but always interesting guest about life, love, and what makes them tick. Today's guest is probably still most well-known for being the first female CEO of a listed company in New Zealand, indeed at just 37 years old, and of our biggest company at the time, Telecom. She's a very experienced CEO, board director, entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. Welcome, Teresa Gatting. Kia ora. Lovely to be here, Simon. Kia ora. It's fantastic to have you. Um, look, I've no doubt, because um, I feel like it takes one to know one at a level, when I think about you, you've worked hard in your young life. You were super smart. I think in my study of you, I've seen that you've referred to yourself a few times as a girly swat um, growing up. So I sort of want to jump straight in. We might come back to your parents and stuff a bit, but to you becoming CEO of Telecom, you, as I've just said, you're 37, mm. which even for me feels young these days. <laughs> um, you, you, you're a woman and, and you know, at a level, a, a man's world and an absolute trailblazer. How hard was it to get the role? Well, it was harder to be as as to become a CEO in those days as a woman. It's still harder than to be a, to become a CEO as a man, but it's it's not as hard as it was back in the nineties. Yep. I set out really. I'm a very determined person, and um, I set out to do that doing my business degree at Waikato. So, I read a book by Helen Place about women's leadership and women in business, and that's when I decided there weren't very many women studying at business school, as you might imagine in those days in the eighties. I decided I'd like to be a CEO of a public company by the time I was 40. So I set that goal out and then basically kept that at the forefront and did what felt right to achieve that goal. That's basically what happened. But you don't want to mention my parents, but it did start with my father because my father was an immigrant and he had this 10-pound pom, four girls, believed girls could do anything, brought us up to believe, to have good self-esteem, and to be very conscious of the need to be financially independent, yeah. not to be dependent on the man or dependent on the state. So, Which is very would have been very modern. Very modern for yeah. his, for, for not just his age, but his background. Where do you think that background. came from with him? What was that about? I don't know, but because he came from a very poor part of London. They had no money, but he remembers at seven, at seven, walking with his mother and looking at a vacant property and saying, I'd like to buy that land and build something on it. At mm. seven, that mm. was not the family background he came from at all. Mm. So... And he was the only boy with all sisters, so very comfortable around women his whole life. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And and but if I think about you, I mean, what you've said to me, it is, and I don't mean this obviously in a bad way, but it is unusual what you've said because role modelling, you know, it's nurses or teachers or you know, and but you wanted you had a business bent obviously from quite early on. Yes, my father was um, a self-made entrepreneur. And, and retired at 48, came to New Zealand as a 10-pound pond at 26. That's that's some good going for, you know. Yep. So I, I came from Is he still a, with us? No, find? he died. He died during actually the end of the first lockdown. Right. Got diagnosed the week of the week of lockdown, the week before lockdown. Um, so that sort of, if I, um, I loved my corporate career and I wouldn't have swapped it for the world. But if I was that age now, I wouldn't do a business degree. I'd go and work for a great entrepreneur. Yeah. Because uh, I don't actually think a business degree is actually... And I suppose that's where it's at today. Yeah. Although that wasn't quite no, like that No, it wasn't like then. that We didn't have then. sort of startup culture and, you know, the Silicon Valley stuff and all of that. Um, and, and, yeah, and what 
without you, you were very purposeful, obviously. I mean, it's the old thing. You, you can luck into something and, hey, well, I've become a CEO, but not often. You you had thought about it. That's what you wanted. Did people treat you differently? Um, and 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 how did people treat you when you got the the big gig? And, I, and again, I'm I'm making it sound like it was just an overnight thing. Obviously, you know, you've been very personal. Sure, you've had sure. jobs that have led to it. But but when you're CEO of Telecom New yeah. Zealand's biggest company by quite a way at the time, how were people? Okay, so um, of course, I'd been in the company for several years by this point. So I had a lot of support around me. So I can remember the celebration in my office. You know, it was wonderful because, you know, my assistant, Chris Woodworth, is still my assistant today. I'd already made good friends among the people I was working with at that point because I'd been in the company five years by that time. The media conference was absolutely unbelievable because I got asked, what about if I got pregnant? Yeah, yeah. And that that was you know, this was 99 by this by this time when I became CEO. It was gobsmacked. The financial market was gobsmacked. They hadn't expected that I would be appointed. Yes. And because, um, you know, in what a leadership, especially in those days, are still tall white men. It's changed a bit since then, but that's yeah. how it was back then. And I remember, well, obviously I lived in Wellington those days. I, talk about your generally famous. I went from being completely unknown yes. to famous overnight that the um, – Dominion yeah, the covered it, it, it and because it was so different, I suppose so, as well. It's so always, unexpected. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you cope with that sort of fame, as it were? Did you have to have a, a image makeover, or you know, telecom spends a lot, lots of money on consultants? No, and, none, none of those things. You know what? At that point, I didn't realise that there would be downsides with being with that level of yeah. fame. No, I probably worked that out too late myself as well. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. All I thought was. Wow, I, I'm surprised this has happened. And then I sort of got used to it. But the downsides, it's like you can be risen up through the media and here we are and you know, in stuff headquarters yes. and you can be pulled down. And it's been like that all through history, but there's a lot of literature, including the Mary Beard guest lecture several years ago in the UK, which charts that for women, that rise and fall is worse and yes. and happens more quickly and happens in a harder way. She treated, she charted Hillary Clinton as well for women. And I think we saw a bit of that with Jacinda, to be honest. Yes. And I felt that too in terms of the beginning of my time to the end of my time. And, and, and uh, that's right. So the, the fatigue around Jacinda, but your, your point is, you know, being a young female and, you know, there's been a bit written on this. It's 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 um it's somewhat different than, say, say a man. I think the penalties for perceived failure and perception is all in the eye of the beholder and at a point of time in history are still worse for men. I think it is harder for women to get second chances. Yeah. You can think of any number of female political leaders or female CEOs yes. who've, you know, fallen from the heights. Yeah. Hard, it's hard to do a Lazarus resurrection, yeah. but there's plenty of examples of the uh, male Steve Jobs, men doing a Lazarus resurrection. Yeah, there for, are. So I, that's why I still think it's hard. It's, it's harder to become a CEO as a woman. It's harder to stay there than a man. I'm sure you're right. I think my thought on all of that would be um, with me and, you know, some public, positive publicity as a political leader and, you know, fair bit of negative. You just, as, 
it's kind of like volume. If if you you keep chucking it out there <laughs> and people move on, right? It's almost like resilience theory or something. But it's um, and would you would you change the way you did things then? You know, it was a lesson from all of that. You know, a lot of corporates do and learn today is surround yourself with an army of comms people and be more private and circumspect. Um, I probably wouldn't because I've always just been myself. Yep. So and that is not who I am. It's hard to reimagine what I was like in my 30s because I'm now in my 60s and I'm so much more um, unwilling now to be anything other than who I am. So I wouldn't I wouldn't have tried so hard to put myself into a CEO box. You know, I did feel like I had to dress a certain way. I was quite colourful, but I pretty much always wore suits. Mm. Now I tend to wear dresses. Mm. But the corporate culture's changed. M- most female CEOs now wear dresses. So... It's hard for me to um, think about it in terms of then versus now because things have changed. The, the things I cared about then, diversity, having a diverse team around me, leading with the team, not not telling them what to do, all those things I intuitively knew and I, I called it my elder sister management style and there's now been a lot more books written about that style of inclusive leadership. So I think some things that came natural to me are now – if you don't do that, you won't become a CEO. No. So so I think the culture has moved more towards my natural style. But back then, whole, the whole thing around sustainability wasn't a thing. That's a, you know that's really shifted in yeah. the last 20-odd um, years. Yeah, even the last handful. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. Um, and sticking with the female and leadership thing, certainly then, maybe now too, you know, we are, and you said political leaders, I, mean, I think Jenny Shipley and Helen Clark, you know, would have faced certainly faced this sort, of, this sort of thing as well. But somewhere, I can't remember where, you know, I've seen you talk about, you know, as a, as a female CEO, you, you have to be strong, but if you're not careful, you're an overly aggressive ogre. Mm. Um, and, you know, are there, talk to me about that. And, and are there other traps, you say, there is a big boss who's a woman? It's very difficult to walk the line between being respected and liked. I think that's an issue for female CEOs and also female political leaders and potentially female leaders in other situations as well. And performance competence, that's also in the eye of the beholder because share market prices, share prices go up and down. We're in a down market at the moment. Uh, It's quite hard to shine in the current market. And so things get judged over time. And one of the reasons I actually wrote my book after I left telecom, because I'd had several approaches, was on a wire. But no, I wanted to write the story. I wanted to write the story of those years. And, you know, no one's ever come out and said that wasn't the story of those years. So I thought it important to record it at the time from my perspective, because because history moves on and it yes. the winners usually record the narrative. Yeah. And women don't usually do the recording, to be no. honest. Not enough um this is theory I have from politics. I think it's true in business in New Zealand as well. Not enough do write books. This is why I wrote one actually. It's just in short and 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 for the same reason you is. I wanted my version of history, you know, in a kind of clever way, <laughs> you know, and that that wasn't what it was really meant meant to look like it was about. But I wanted my version out there anyway. That 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 sort of doesn't take us anywhere. Um, how much easier is it for women now in the corporate world as opposed to in the late nineties, early two thousands? It's a loaded question, it, but it is easier. But that doesn't mean it is easy. Sure. Uh, 
you know. I've We're not had, there yet. No. Um, the motherhood penalty, you know, having children, parental leave, all those things still really matter. But what I see is male CEOs a lot more focused on that because, as you know, I chair Global Woman. Mm. And, the, you know, the our 60 corporate partners, you can't be a corporate partner unless you sign up to gender pay gap reporting. And those CEOs, male and female, are very focused on talent, and they're all they're all they've all signed up to um, gender balance boards, gender balance executive teams. They call it we call it forty forty twenty, so forty percent male, forty percent female, and twenty percent whatever you know works at the time. And so there's an acceptance that that's the norm, and an aspiration to go further. There's now conversations very much around. Um, other other differentiations, whether it's neurodiversity, what, and certainly in the last two years, just an explosion interest in Te Māori and how our companies actually be good leaders in New Zealand at this time. So, I I I see nothing stands still. You know, everything everything changes and moves along, and because of that, because of that focus on we have to do things differently. We have to we have to harness all the talent that's in New Zealand. We're becoming younger. We're becoming browner. It has got easier to be, to have a leadership position in a corporate, if you're not uh, a white male compared to in the '90s. Yeah, and and so all of what you've said is um, is fantastic, right? That, that uh, the style change in leadership. I get what you've said there. You know, it's it's. Um, and I think new younger leaders just instinctively do it now. It's got to be more inclusive. It's worth not, as you say, too, and you know, consultative and all of these things. And then also in terms of you know those matters of diversity and um, tell Maori and uh, sustainability and all those things. Right, so that's good. Tick. I wonder though, just to be controversial and see if I can get you to say something controversial about. <laughs> I, I sit there and I I think, and I've said this a few times, it's not actually that controversial, but I sit there and I don't see, and yeah, they were all white men, I get that, but I don't see the leaders, corporate leaders today that were there back in your day, if I can put it that way. Um, the um, Even the Roderick Deans, you know, and, and the Ron Carters and the um, Ralph Norris's, who put their head above the parapet a bit, I sit there and see there's a very sanitised, comsy version where unless it's talking about the Warriors and, and a handful of others, they, they won't say peep. You won't get them on anything difficult. Oh, look, I can't speak for that. I do want to I, I, I just... Um, well, I thought I'd give it a go. I, I, I do want to... There's a few things I want to say about that. First of all, I do want to pay tribute to two of those people we talked about. I mean, Roderick Dean was a mentor to me. Yeah. Clearly, I wouldn't have become CEO without his support. Yes. And I remember how delighted he was when he, when the board appointed Patsy Reddy to the board. And I remember him coming in to see me and saying, she was the best. He was so delighted to appoint a woman and, to that and board. My persona, and I don't say this in an overly negative way, right? Because he's a great person, and you know, it, it, for New Zealand. But I, it was slightly crusty, neoliberal dude, business round tabley kind of a guy. But he obviously had, um, like your father, there was something there. Totally. And um, Ralph Norris, I remember. I was actually, I think I might have been in Australia at the time. Um, Ralph Norris. Um, he was at that time running CBA, but he was talking with such pride about the fact that in New Zealand, which he he was no longer the CEO of, the programs he'd put in place to get women in leadership, not just in the, you know, in the white collar world, but as engineers, as pilots, was coming to fruition. And so, I think 
of that era, of my era, men like Roderick Dean and Ralph Norris were at the forefront of this. Now today, I think if you got um, the current co-chairs of Champions in here, who are Antonio Watson and Matt Pritchard, executive mm-hmm. chair of KPMG, they'd be very forthright. Mm. And uh, I don't think you'd find them guarded. I think they'd be very forthright on their organisations and, and what they're doing in this area and what they've still got to do because that is the spirit of the energy of the Champions Group that's that Global Women partner with. Okay, I want to believe you. But um, now, one question I have. I, I remember somewhere you, you, in fact, you'd thought about going into merchant banking but effectively, you're told this is the bloke's only yeah, that's business. True. Is that still? Is this? Are there still roles out there? Do you think that are typecast men that are either off limits or certainly much harder for women to get? Yes, that industry. Yep. That industry. That is true. So um, back in the eighties in Wellington, I had a, a, a business degree. I'd nearly finished my law degree. I thought it would be really cool to be an investment banker. You could ask, well, how does that fit with being a CEO? But anyway, I had this idea. That's what I wanted to do. I'd Business watching stuff. Watching TV commercial. show, obviously. Um, and <laughs> I think LA Law made me a lawyer. <laughs> that and my father bullying me, but yeah. <laughs> and anyway, I got a decline letter, even though I thought the interview went quite well. And then they called me and they said, look, the real reason is. They didn't actually put it in writing. They told me over the phone. And I was very upset. But, you know, my father used to say, and the door shuts, find a window. So I stuck with financial services. I went to National Mutual, yeah. and then, um, and which has been a you know a hallmark of my career, and then to the BNZ. So it all worked out fine in the end. But um, yes, that industry. Well, as you know, there's been class lawsuits settled in the last few mm. years about discrimination in that sector, and even today. Um, just earlier this year, my friend Jenny Rudd and I did a, re- um, I know did a Jenny. report. Mm. Um, Jen- she lives at the Mount, so mm. yes, you know her. The gender investment gap, and we. Because we'd looked for data. We knew from our own anecdotal being in that sector of startups, it was much harder for women. It gets disguised because quite a few women set up businesses with their husbands. So it's a male and female team. And so then the backers, the VC firm says, oh, yeah, we support female founders. We've got female founders. But when you actually do the research and you look at true female founder teams, one woman or, say, two fr- two women, two friends, a mother and a daughter or two sisters, and you compare that with all male teams or gender mixed teams, the stats are shocking. Mm. All women teams in New Zealand and in the world get a fraction of the funding of all male teams. Mm. So we did that and we presented it. And we and it's an opportunity, right? This is not to this is not a shame and blame game. It's a huge opportunity for this country. And to be honest, uh, I don't really want to name names here, but we tried to get the politicians interested in this. We tracked ourselves to Wellington. Um, it was a very difficult to actually find anyone to talk to. We did have a good session with Nicola Willis, has to be said. We tried really hard from Jacinda's days to get into her or someone senior in Labour. We couldn't. And so in the end, we gave up on the politicians because we don't need law change. And we ha- and ANZ supported us doing a launch to the industry, which went incredibly well. And, you know, I, I um, one of the COVID, during the COVID time, I was at my place at the beach because my parents lived next door and my father had terminal bowel cancer. And I thought about, well, what are the major contributions I could make? And one of the things I decided to do was to approach Auckland University and see if I could set up, be part of setting up a centre for women in entrepreneurship, which I did. So that centre is probably going to pick up some of the monitoring of this ongoing. But we've made a really good start in lifting the bonnet on this issue and getting into a conversation about how this can be changed, more female investment managers, um, reporting it properly. And 
Just this year, the government has asked New Zealand Growth Capital Partners to report on the gender balance of their founders. So it started, but to your point, this is still an industry that does not look, it looks very male compared to, say, um, companies that are selling into the consumer sector, which are, you know, female consumers always been important. Those boards look much more gender balanced and, and their leaderships teams do than um, companies. Not, I'm not counting commercial banks here. So mm. outside commercial banks, most of which have female CEOs and some of which have female chairs. Mm. But the rest of the, the investment sector, to this day, we only have um, one company from that sector, Craig's Investment Partners, also out of Tauranga originally, mm is the only representative from that sector in Global Woman. But we've got the telcos, we've got mm. the banks, we've got the insurance companies, we've got the manufacturers, we've got Toyota, we've just got Craig. So that tells you that they're barely starting the journey that the rest of corporate New Zealand's been on for a while. Got it. And I think a couple of things you said that I think are worth, I think that, you know, longer I live, private the private sector often is best led to lead these things, a place to, and, and, and you know, we think we have to go to politicians, so, but I think there's something in that. And I think the other thing was what you were saying, which anecdotally seems to me to be true, is in the corporate world these days, with the exception of the sort of finance investment sectors you talked about, um, and you take the, the banks, for example, they're pretty good. In fact, I think, you know, Four or five out of six yes. of them are, have, have female yes. CEOs, and actually, as you say, many of the chairs are also. Um, but I would say you you said to us earlier, you know, look, if I do it again, I might be a startup entrepreneur. Mm. That'd be pretty, with some notable exceptions, including your ones that you've been integral on, like Cecilia Robinson and Nadia Lim's My Food Bag, and then Tend. But that'd be a fairly blokey sector, would you say, or have I got that wrong? Oh, I think you've got that wrong. Sectors. I think you've got that wrong. Well, it's a blokey sector because it's much easier for men to raise capital. The university right. did a research on that several years ago, and our research sort of backed that up. But New Zealand's full of examples of successful female entrepreneurs. I mean, yes, Celia Robinson, um, who's become a very close friend of mine, mm-hmm. is obviously one of the star entrepreneurs of her generation. But there are others, Brianne West. Yes. Former generally famous podcast episode. Go back into the back season and check her out. um, Brooke Roberts. I think the thing is to to pick the sector that interests you and do something you're passionate about and then figure out who would you go and work for. And you see that in the fact. Tech's pretty blokey, though. Tech is pretty blokey, but tech, you know, but you may be. Pretty white and Asian blokey. Yeah, it is. But look in Australia, the most successful tech company the last decade over there is Canva, and that's um, Melanie Perkins. Sure. So you might say that's exception to every rule. If you want to go and work for the best entrepreneurs, you wouldn't necessarily have a gender lens. You'd look and see who's the best entrepreneurs. And you would learn a lot. Of course, but if nine out of ten of them are men, um, that's not because, you know, several women aren't doing a good job, but there's something about the sector that's not quite working. But, What's not working yeah. is the funding, is, the, is getting Got the it. capital to scale Follow up. the money. Follow the money. Yeah. That's what's not working. Can I just say, I just want to close that out. Um, and through the Getting Foundation, we support an Illumina Award for the Young Enterprise Scheme. And at Young Enterprise Scheme in Schools, and Young Enterprise wonderful, Scheme is wonderful in... Wonderful scheme the Chamber yes. of Commerce in Auckland delivers throughout this region. Yep. But just, you know, it, just getting that in there, a well, little sort of side benefit for Simon Bridges leading this podcast. What I want to get in there is, as you know, Simon, about 80% of schools now take part in Young Enterprise Scheme. Yep. 
And this, so this is a very good spread of New Zealand, and it is a, almost exactly 50-50 girls and mm. boys. Mm. So it is just not the case that boys and therefore men are more entrepreneurial mm. than women. At school, it is the same. And what is the difference to your, particularly in tech where you need, you know, capital, is the funding. It's the funding. It's not about the innate ability of girls or female entrepreneurs. Yeah, got it. I'm I'm sure there's a lot in, uh, that's in what you say. Um, change tech slightly. Well, big question. What makes a great CEO? <sighs> you've got to like um, being around. You've got to like leading teams. Hmm. You've got to, and we were talking about this, you know, before. You, you've also got to be really resilient because. It, it, it's, you know, you, you start out with a plan for the day, but all sorts of things happen. So you're always thinking of the big picture, but you've got to respond to what's going on. You, you're managing lots of different stakeholder groups. You've got to keep yourself fit and on top of the game mm. and, you know, in, in you know, healthy. And that can be a struggle with, um, you know, travel and meeting investors, et cetera. Although I think that's got easier than in my day where people were more likely to hop on a plane and go overseas. I think more of that is now done by Zoom. So that makes yes. it easier. There, I don't think there's one recipe. You have to be. Um, I used to think it was a matter of personality. I, I, but I used to think that it was better to be an extroverted leader. But mm. I no longer think that. I think it's a matter of character, not personality. You can yeah. be an introvert and a very successful CEO. Yeah. But you have to be able to inspire people, and you have to be able to get the right people on the bus, to use Jim Collins' language, and you have to be able to move them off the bus or around the bus. And do that in a way that actually galvanises the organisation, doesn't paralyse it. Yeah, no, that's great. And and c- compare it, and I'll tell you where I'm going on this. I'm not trying to trick you here. I mean, exec- chief executive pay. I mean, compare and contrast with, say, a school principal or a medium-sized business owner or the mayor of a city. I mean, they're all leadership roles. They're all hard, but only some of them, i.e. the CEO ones, get millions of dollars a year. Well, that's because it's male-dominated. Has, have you ever wondered why orthopaedic surgeons, which are 90% male, still make millions a year, but GPs, which are mainly female, make, you know, 100 something or other grand? But it's, yeah. it's the feminization of a workforce reduces the pay. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. There are more female teachers and there are more male CEOs. It's been a long time since I've been CEO and the pay is higher than in my day. Yeah. But it ultimately comes down to what society values. And if we don't, if we if we valued it differently, we would make different choices about resource allocation. So look at the differential in pay between nurses and doctors. Is that fair? Mm. And we can change that. So I don't think any of this is any of this is set in stone. And is some of it though about the fact that, you know, and, and my question is this, have we moved away from to some extent in, in, in business land that's all about profit maximization and the, the shareholder? Oh, definitely. The stakeholder theory of management is well entrenched. It's actually got to the point now where if you don't take a wider perspective, you'll be penalised by investors. If you have a crisis to do with, it could be anything, it could be a climate issue or it could be a personal failing, it could be financial sin, it could be sexual sin, I'm using that in a very broad sense. Mm. You just can't get away with it. You actually, Mm. matters of integrity both personal and corporate are way more important now and the transparency of a world in which you know we're all being watched and monitored and seen and you know do you remember back in back in my day there was in the beginning um, when I first went to work at telecom there was no internet you couldn't easily get to a CEO let alone be you know talking about 
on social media, what you saw them do or heard them do, etc. So there's greater transparency now. Truths ring true. Integrity is the most important thing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And um, you see that fascinating case that one of the um, BP chief executive, I think it is, you know, where it's, in the end it wasn't sexual stuff per se, but it's the trust issues. Yes. And deceiving the the, the board that um, rightly probably got got him. Um, look, there's so much ESG, social purpose businesses. Give me a few words on that. Well, that's effectively what we've just been talking about, yep. environmental social governance. Uh, companies, in my experience, are taking this really seriously. Mm. They're not doing it as a little bit on the side. They're deeply thinking about what their purpose is, where they find themselves at this time in their organisation, in their industry, and how they can, of course, be commercially successful over the medium long term, as well as, or alongside, being you know, a, a force for good in the country and the world. That's that's a very live conversation. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate. What would your advice be to a young person, female, male, doesn't really matter, um, who's, who wants to get up the corporate ladder? And what, what, what have you any, I mean, I appreciate it's very general, but yeah. what, well, any d- general thoughts? Yeah, I do get asked by that quite a lot. My actual, my my advice, if you're in your late teens or your 20s, is <clears throat> to relax. I was, like, I, I should have had my first burnout at 25 because I was in too much of a sprint. Yeah. Life's a long time. And the roles that they'll be doing when they're our age, Simon, don't exist today. So my advice is it doesn't matter. Don't be anxious. You can go to university you can decide law's not for you. You can change course. You can avoid university and go later. You can work for a bad boss and learn. You can work from a good boss and learn. I would always start with what they like to do when they were seven years old because our innate, what we like to do when the world doesn't say, well, girls from Rotorua can't do that and Māori boys from Oakuni can't do that, is your innate skills and talents. And, and you're looking ultimately for that which you love to do and the world will pay you to do. So mm. start with what you love to do, and you'll eventually figure out a way for the world to pay you to do it. Yeah, fantastic. I'm trying to think what I like to do at seven. I think I did like to read little political books. So there you go. Um, governance, 
obviously, but 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 you know, I suppose the question there is, you know, again, would you encourage people into it? But is it? I presume it's something. Actually, you'd say, well, if you want to be on the board of, you know, Tend or something, um, be a CEO or a CFO or something first. Yes. Um, or a partner in a law or accounting firm. Right. So governance sounds dry. Oh, they tend to make terrible board members, don't they? <laughs> no, not necessarily. Um, you can't do that. Well, you've got to have a good chair of audit and risk, and they often come from those organisations. Yeah. Um, governance sounds dry and boring, but it isn't. It's it's. I think you don't want to do it too young. If you still feel like you want to be in the trenches every day, get up early, give it all you've got every day, work with a team, then you don't want to do it. But if you get to the point where you still want to make a contribution, you want to work with people, but you know you want to get up at 7 o'clock, not 4.30am, then it's a fantastic way to have a portfolio life and to have some flexibility. And you can... It suits me because I'm a naturally curious person. Back to your girly swat, I did extra subjects when I was at school C. So I like to have several things on the go at once. I like to have different things. But mostly for me, it's where I've got an emotional attachment or a financial interest. I'm a big investor in tent as well. The only board I chair, well, Global Woman is purpose-led, but um, AIA New Zealand is the only board I chair where I'm not, a, you know, it's a typical board governance yes. role. I'm not an investor as well. Yeah, no, see. Um just sort of loosely weave your story in here. I mean, 2007, I think I'm right, you um, left Telecom as CEO. Maybe a tough period. You'd separated. You had um, mm. the re-regulation of Telecom and, you know, it, it started to get – and I remember reading you, you know, you left feeling um, alone and, and bereft of sort of structure. And I can understand that. You've had – you've been sort of literally married to the job and then you're out. Um, we can talk about that if you want, but what's also true is – and again, I think what I've heard you say is you reinvented yourself. You um you went from that sort of very corporate world to sort of governments and governance and entrepreneurialism, and and even not more recently because you've been doing it a long time, but but in a public sense, mm. philanthropy. Mm. Well, that four years, two thousand and five to two thousand and nine, was the most difficult period of my life. There's no mm. doubt about that. The complete whammy of a separation of my partner after more than 20 years together, separation of telecom and feeling like I'd failed and, you know, what was I going to do next? And then um, my my biggest financial asset, my apartment, was a leaky building and there was no – it didn't seem a path to get it fixed. And So that, that was a very um, sort of uh, – I, I remember walking in Wellington and everyone's going on with their life and their jobs and I'm – I'm thinking, well, this can't be it. I'm like, and only in my, I'm only 45. This can't be it. So that was really quite a difficult period, and I was saved by a couple of things. My very good friend Margaret Dukas, sadly now deceased, who took me up to the SPCA, which I'd been supportive of financially for years, but never had any time for, and she showed me the. Um, the state of the building, and they were they'd taken the birds out of the outdoor aviary, and they had they had cats in there. They had the plumpy cats in there could withstand a bit cold, and it was like she said, "We we we've got to get the animals out of this building." I've always loved animals, so had she. And so, for the next year, I set about working with her to fundraise for the new animal centre, which which we did, which exists today in Wellington. And so, taking it away from myself and focusing on doing something for 
Is that the old mortuary or something? Yeah. Or, or asylum or something? Yeah, yeah. 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 Amazing building. Amazing building. But it was the last – every They run um, – they, they were running um, – Ghoul sort of haunted were, house tours it, through it, which the, I always wanted to do. Well, the windows were all broken. It was, it was a the, fixing that was like the last project on the Wellington Council City Council list, and mm. it, and then it became a poster child of working with the SPCA mm. to repurpose the building. So it's a wonderful animal care centre now. So that was the start. You you are now very much known as a philanthropist, and uh, acknowledging you've always uh, been one. It seems to me it's always been about giving back. And again, does that that's come from your well from your Catholicism? Yes. You, you know, I know you're not a practicing a Catholic today, but you know you grew up with that that and your parents, I suppose, is where it came yeah, from. Yeah, that's where it came from. I had a, a Catholic school education, which in my case was great. The nuns were great role models. Mm. My parents were both Catholic. My mother was a good convert. Good to hear that, because it's very fashionable to say it was terrible yeah, and they no, were no, nasty was... and they used to cane me and so on, but you had a good experience. Yeah, I had a good experience. Uh, it was, you know, it was um, what they call the Brown Joes. It was Mary McKillop, an Australian um, order of yes. nuns that taught in Rotorua. And what I didn't like was I, well, I left the school, which was McKillop College, and it merged with the boys' school next door and became John Paul College. So the, right. the female identity Sub, you know, the schools merged. Yes. But anyway, it was a good school when I went through. Um, and Andrew and I, my sister and I, we set up the Gatting Foundation, and we support some scholars from that school today, actually. Fantastic. Yes, I have um, – that's where it came from, the idea that your life – it's important for you to better provide for yourself and your family, but it's also important to give back. And from my first paycheck mm. my, in my early 20s, I started doing direct debits to charities that I still support today, the SPCA, Women's Refuge, things like that. So I do um, believe that my father had a great gift in the way he looked at money. And I think too often people think about money from a scarcity perspective. They see it as a stock. Here's this jug with water. There's a finite amount of water. And if I drink half of it, there's only there's less for you. But that's not how money works. Mm. Money's supposed to be in flow. So if you relax about it and you believe that you don't get anxious about it, you believe you'll always have enough, you'll be able to create more and so can everybody else, then we would all be in a much healthier society. And I believe that. So I've always had it in flow. I've always given money oh, away. It's fantastic. It's great. It's, I suppose it actually is quite a religious, it's that religious tithing thing. I know that's not necessarily what you're saying. That that's uh, And, and it's, not a, it's, not a, um, it's not finite. No, it's not finite. And currency... The, the language we use for money is a flow language, currency, current flow, but mm. we treat it as a stock. Yeah, no, that's very. I feel like there's a book in that somewhere, Teresa. Um, almost exactly a year ago, I think I'm right. You and your sister Angela started a multi-million-dollar charitable foundation, as you as, as you well know, the Getting Foundation, to make a real difference. And look, I'm, many things you, you've been giving to, I think, but women and girls, poverty and equality, care and protection of animals, all causes you've, you've already mentioned you care deeply about. My question is, how's it, how's it gone a year on? Great. It, it's fantastic. We've, we're actually... Um we're doing a sort of a one-year graphic, infographic of of, of um, what we've achieved in the year, but it is, it's it's so inspiring to be around young women and to see how you can inspire them, and it's wonderful. We our first principle is co-design, so we don't go look we're this and we do that. We go to the SPCA and we say, well, what is your greatest need? Well, their greatest need was a vehicle for the far north mm. because of the hundreds of thousands of kilometres that are being driven there and 
the truck had, you know, sort of it was well past its use by date. So we've got a purpose purpose vehicle for them. And that that has now gone when you just look at a map from the very north of North Island all the way down the whole part of Northland, you go, wow, all the hundreds of incidents it's been the animals it's rescued, the you just look at that. The ambulance we bought for the Western Bay of Plenty. Yeah, amazing. Um, fifty five thousand kilometers in the last sort of nine months and that's that was a very special ceremony doing that. So the the programs that we support tend to be we support some organisations already, like say Middlemore Foundation, First Foundation, etc. But we mainly do co-creation of programs because my sister Angela was a principal for a long time. She's from an educational background. She's you know very 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 clever and used to working with people and creating things. So for example, one of the programs we're supporting at the moment is called the Tonui Collab. And it's in the East Coast, one of the most underprivileged parts of New Zealand. And we're supporting eight Kura, just the girls. And I get challenged sometimes about that. Why don't you support boys? And I say, because there's plenty stop, of... Stop anticipating my questions. There's plenty of wealthy men and male philanthropists. We support <laughs> girls. So these girls, the eight Kura, are all in Te Reo Immersion. They're learning in Māori. So they're standing proud in their, you know, their whakapapa, their understanding of themselves. And, and we are supporting them to learn STEM and robotics. Amazing. So they came to the, and we paid for them to go to the national champs last year. They're in Lower Hutt. They didn't win, but they did get a, the judges' award. So why do we do this? Well, this program could scale up, but imagine Aotearoa, New Zealand. If the poorest Maori girls from the poorest region of New Zealand, standing proud in what in their history and with their ancestors, but with the skills for the 21st century, can you imagine how much better off we are of a country if we are able to embrace all the talent that exists in this country? And so that's an example of a program we do. Here in Tamaki, um, we run with Topitoa Pave Your Path. So uh, Angela works with the principals. We get girls from schools around Auckland, uh, typically Murray and Pacifica, what used to be called lower decile schools, doesn't call that now. We bring them in for a day and we we basically inspire them to look at life differently. And uh, the te- a teacher comes with them. And when I was speaking at the last session a couple of months ago, she said to me, you know, we bought 10 girls last time and only one of them was thinking of going to university. In the end, all of them except one went to university. And I said, just from this one-day program. And she said, yes, just from this one-day program. So... We do do ambulance at the bottom of the cliff things as well, um, support, pet ref, support pet, ref, pet refuge. I like things that bring together animals and supporting women. That's that's one that does. Mm. Uh, and there are other organisations, horse, horse whispering, supporting damaged people, all sorts of interesting things we get involved in in that space. But basically it's women, girls, animals, and sometimes we do things that touch our heart that are separate from that. We've just become... We just set up the inaugural um, Creative Design Award for Mindful Fashion for cycling and fashion. Andrew and I both love clothes. We have Fashion Sister pop up for selling recycled second clothes. Second, pre-loved clothes is a better word. And the money goes to the Gating Foundation. It goes mm. to the charities. So we do lots of things within that ambit. It's been a great year. It's fantastic. Um, and, and how how does that? You know, I understand the purpose of it. Well, the purpose is, how does it make you feel? I mean, I hope you feel chuffed about it. <laughs> yeah, I feel chuffed about it. Yeah. I, I do other things as well outside New Zealand. Um, yep. Cambodia Charitable Cam- Trust. Which you, you know, know, Denise Arnold. Denise Arnold, well, yep. yeah. And, you know, that's 
that is changing. And I just want to, I I just need a little bit of virtue signaling here myself. Yes. I I sponsor a girl. You do. Okay. Actually, it was soap on. I think it's someone else. I I haven't come prepared with the name, but we do. The the AP goes out. And your wife, Natalie, has given her comms advice for free Mm. for Denise for a decade. Mm. So what this is, is um, Cambodia is a small country, 17 million people. And it's not about religion that girls don't get educated. It's just poverty. Yes. So she, she's a lawyer from Tauranga, has gone in there with a local team on the ground and found a way to get a, get support through the training colleges to hugely increase the level of training capability mm. of teachers and then support the schools. And there's a sponsorship program for girls, which, as Simon's alluding to, takes them through primary, secondary, and now for the last few years, university. So mm. there's now... I don't know. It's about 100 girls at university in Cambodia. Who and you've been over there and met some of them? Yeah, I no, have. It's quite a, I would have. It be, I, we've thought about we haven't, but it'd be an amazing experience. I also support World Pulse, which is um, a whole tech platform for women in developing countries to be able to share their stories, to be able to mobilise, et cetera. And I support um, education for girls in Pakistan much harder because the woman doing that faces death threats because mm. it's a whole religious thing. Yeah. So that's harder. And... Um, yeah, and in New Zealand, it's through the Gatting Foundation and also through my um, work with the university. Um, women and girls, and I was going to ask you why, but it's like I think it's, we can work. It's pretty obvious, but we've already talked about your father, and you know he was sort of a feminist before f- feminism. What was interesting, and you mentioned this as well, is um, he was seriously outnumbered. I mean, you, you and your mum was all girls, and you know daughters. Um, he himself had five sisters. I, I just. <laughs> I don't mean to be overly flippant, but I wonder how a, a, a brother would have got on. If we'd had a brother? Yeah. Oh, it wouldn't have made any difference to me. I was the eldest. So as long as I was the eldest, I didn't. I wouldn't have minded whether they were little brothers or little sisters. Do you describe yourself as a feminist or is that an Absolutely. old word? word is, is, it, is there a, No. That's the word still. Emma Watson made that word cool about 10 years ago when yep. she took on the global ambassador role for UN. I have always been a feminist at university when – um, you know, it seems so naive and innocent now, but, you know, when Playboy was handed around the class, I stood up and challenged the lecturer to say that that wasn't acceptable. And I did women's studies at university. That Doing business and women's studies would be unusual now. It was unheard of then. But I wasn't accepted um, really over in the School of Arts as a feminist because I was a capitalist. So, so mm. being a capitalist and being a feminist, which I always have been and still am, mm. a capitalist, a feminist, a philanthropist, being true to myself and being that have, has often meant that I've been out of step with at least some of the people around me. But over time, I found my tribe of other people who are those things. Yeah, amazing. Um Look, there's so many other things I wanted to cover. We're running out of time here. You know, uh, we've got to talk family. You're a lover of books. I know that's something you've you've had from very young. Let me let's do some quick fires on some of the things I was going to. Books. I mean, what are you, what are you reading at the moment? Sorry to put you on the spot. You've got. I know you probably got a pile next to your bed. Um, well, I'm actually just started reading Wifedom, which um, my friend Pip Greenwood, we both love books together, gave me, and it's about George Orwell and how his wife, Erica O'Shaughnessy, was in fact such a powerful supporter of his work. So, yes. but didn't get credit for it. So. I've just I, I've just finished um, Tom Lake um, and Patchett and uh, the Wren the Wren. Um, oh, no, and, well, you, and you, Enright. I, I'm a patron of the Writers Festival. I love books. I read a book a week. My favourite book this year is The Witching Tide by Margaret Mayer. 
Oh, amazing. Yeah, mm. well, look, that's uh, no, you've come to the party on that. And, and is there time for TV? You said, what, watch any Netflix or Neon? Have you got yes. any series there that you'd say that was the one that I really enjoyed that? At the moment, I'm watching with my mum, and we're really enjoying Billions, which is. Oh, yeah. And, I watched a little bit of that. And also Sex Education, which is just finished. Yeah, I saw, I, saw, I haven't, st- I haven't looked at that one. Um, I said I'd do quick fire swimming. Yeah. This is a big deal for you. Um, I've got a question on that. Did you, is that an exercising or do you actually genuinely enjoy it? And let me add another one in here while we're going quick fire. Do you do into – my wife likes the – Natalie likes the um, – she likes getting into a lake and that sort of whatever you call it, but natural and wild yeah. swimming. Yeah, yeah. Is that something for you? Um, I do swim outdoor. I have I now do have long lap pools at both my homes, so I swim in those. Swimming is non-negotiable for me. I love it. I, I only don't swim if I've got a broken bone or COVID. Um, it's it's partly exercise and partly meditation. It just sets me up for the day. Yeah. It's it's I love it. Yeah, no, fantastic. And um, one thing you used to be into in my stalk, stalking of you was horses. Oh yeah, I love that. You're still into that? No. You got any syndications or anything? Um, well, I, I I had great success early with Mark Todd, and then I gave the game away when he retired from um, right. picking horses. I used to ride a lot for years. Yes. I don't now. I broke my Achilles playing tennis, and then came to Auckland. My my, I didn't get a horse here, and it's just it's just harder to do it than it was in Wellington. So I've given that up, but I've become quite a a, a, a Pilates junkie now. So. Right. You are someone who comes through and, you know, us chatting, um, who needs to have, and I'm a bit the same, um, 10 things on the go. And, and but, you know, you, you talked about um, burnout even in your 20s. And I think there was another period where, you know, you, you, you'd had that. Um, I, I, have you changed? Are you now a more mindful sort of um learned how to rest kind of a person or yes I've got a bit better at that <laughs> I've got a bit better at saying no and I've got a bit better at protecting my sleep I really need eight hours sleep a night I'm not a you know oh yeah I'm, I'm cool on five hours absolutely not yeah. but it's still a work in progress uh, that year of um that the second burnout the worst burnout was in my mid-50s and I spent a year when I could really hardly I couldn't really leave the house and even though I was exhausted, my mind is still creating all these other things I could be doing, not should be doing. Not, it wasn't a should. It was a, gosh, that's really interesting. I'm naturally interested in many different things. I've always been very curious. And so I have to pace myself not to take too much on, to be able to have enough time to walk along the beach and to, you know, just sort of be spontaneous about things. Fantastic. And, and you know, you've got plenty of time. So it's not, I'm not saying in your last three years and you need to. Yeah. But have you got? Are there things left? Say, my future. I kind of do need to do this, or I want to do this, or. Um, yes, we're having a great time at Tend. Really changing healthcare for the better for all Kiwis, and we're only just started on that journey. And I'm loving working with Celia and James and Josh and Marco on that. Uh, and we're definitely not done in the Getting Foundation. We're only one year in, so we're figuring out still which programs c- have the most impact and we, you know, how do we do that. We'd like to partner with other bigger foundations to scale things up to have more impact. Uh, so I've still got you know plenty to... Fuel in the tank yep, and yep. things to achieve. Fantastic. Yes. I'm going to wrap up by asking questions I ask every guest. This section we call General Knowledge. As a girly swat, I'm sure you've prepared yourself, so so I hope you're ready. If you could be somebody else for the day, who would you be? It's a toss-up between Amal Clooney and George Clooney. 
because Amel looks like she's got everything, brains, beauty, happy marriage, etc., purposeful work. But then I'd quite like to be George for the day and just for a day experience what it's like to be powerful in a male body. So one of those two. Or is it all just a charade? I mean, who would know? Um, what's your most embarrassing moment? Oh, there's been more than one occasion when I've been on a road trip somewhere and I've had to sort of do a pee on the side of the road and <laughs> someone's come past. <laughs> Reminds me of a West Coast trip I once did. It was persisting down with rain and all I had was a a, a, a water bottle. And I tried doing the car. It didn't go very well, but uh, only Natalie was there to see that. So that's all right. Um, if money was no object, what are the first three things you'd buy? Well, I, well... I, I interpreted that as first three things I've done, and I've sort of done it. Helped yeah. my family get into houses, set up the Getting Foundation, and buy myself an electric sports car. Yeah. So, and on that, I mean, you, 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 your um, your family's very close, and you, yes, what your mum, I think, is at least one sister. You're there on what the same street? Why he? Yeah, me, myself, and two sisters. Me, mum, and two sisters. Fantastic! Look, I wish I was sibling. I'd be, I could be that male brother. I love Why He Beach. Um, it's too expensive these days. Um, which famous actor would play you in the movie of your life? Gina Davis. Love it. <laughs> Yeah, good. That's good. I, I see that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, what's the strangest tradition in your family? I don't think we do have any strange traditions, but I think strange to many people is that we love playing cards. We play 500 for hours. I love 500. We used to too. We, we have very similar family traditions. Yes. At Waihee Beach, we used to play it too. <laughs> at Waihee Beach, I played it this week. If you could choose to stop ageing at any age, which would you choose? Well, if you're talking about physical ageing, some some age between 40 and 45, I think that's when I was at my physical peak. I was really enjoying galloping, horse riding, and I, I'm, I'm just really too scared to do that now. But if you're talking about emotional resilience and emotional intelligence, actually it's any time between age 50 and now. Mm. So I ended up going, it depends what you mean by the question, Simon. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, Teresa Ginning, it's been fantastic to have you on. CFP, capitalist, feminist, philanthropist, and proud of it. You've been listening to Generally Famous, Stuff Podcast. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black, and audio editor, John Ropiha. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.